0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the very first podcast of Quill and Curtain, a podcast by playwrights for playwrights. And we are having an amazing guest today. It's John Patrick Bray from Georgia. Uh, He is an exceptional playwright and has a long history. Um, I can tell you a little something about him. It's John Patrick Bray. He has a PhD in theater studies from Louisiana State University an MFA in playwriting from the Actors Studio Drama School at the New School, and he teaches at the University of Georgia. His plays have won the 2015 Appalachian Festival of Plays and Playwrights, and he received its world premiere at the Barter Theatre. And he has been a semi-finalist for both the O'Neill National Playwrights Conference and the Ashland New Play Festival. He is an independent screenwriter and anthology editor, and you might not know this, but he was once upon a time a bagel maker. So we want to welcome you aboard. How are you, Jack? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. It really means a lot to me. So there are a lot of things that I've read about you and that I know about you, uh, but I really want you to be able to say it um and i want to start you you off with a really simple question um what what do you think drew you to playwriting to begin with and what is this path you have taken
1: oh you know it's funny about paths is sometimes you don't recognize you're on a path until you look behind you and see that you've created one um when i was younger so my brother and i i have a twin brother and sometimes i'll say we and i mean him and i um We grew up in upstate New York and we went to community college and at the time, I thought I wanted to be um, either a radio DJ or do something behind the camera for like a local TV station. And I love theater. We had a really fun theater uh, teacher in high school and got involved in community theater. But my brother and I wrote a script together for an advanced communication class at a community college. And folks said, you know, this feels more like a play because it's one set, multi-characters. And so we revised it as a play just for fun. And we produced it at the community college with the help of the programming board and the Student Government Association. And ran it for a weekend. And that was back in 1996. And since then, I've just had the bug, and it's never gone away. I ended up writing a short play for... Uh, like a theater one practicum class at SUNY New Paltz when I transferred. Um, and then, uh, like many people, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, um, especially in college, where different things kind of, uh, you're introduced to different worldviews and different ideas and different passions. And I figured I wanted to do something with either acting or writing. And when I applied to the actor studio drama school at New School, something I liked back then, was that the playwrights took the same classes as the actors and so we all developed the same vocabulary and the directors all three of us you know the third year the playwrights had their more specialized moments and the directors and actors have their more specialized things but the well those first couple of years we were in each other's company constantly and we just learned the same language and um so that was kind of the start of it It was way back in community college writing a uh, what was meant to be a film script just for a communication class turning into a play and then charging forward um and uh and loving theater and loving production and loving writing for um theater artists and and with theater artists and and more recently with film artists so it's been a it's been a hoot but yeah like i said it's kind of you know you do one project and another one happens and then another one happens another one happens and before you know it you know it's like you have a career
0: That's fascinating stuff. I didn't know that you could start with actors and directors as part of the same language. And let's talk about language. Where do you, where is your work inspired from that gives you the ability to create characters with stories that have depth that you can bring to life?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. I, I think part of it is that all of us bring some form of autobiography. And maybe this is an oversimplification, but I feel like um, even if we're writing like an historical drama where we've done tons of research into the era or if we're writing a play about a real person, there's something about the subject or the person or the era that speak to, speaks to us in a way that resonates with us. And <laughs> and so um, so I think that whatever it is there's a sense of autobiography in everything we do but the other thing is i do a lot of exercises um that i learned in grad school and that others i've kind of developed on my own that involve um working from photographs working from uh collections of objects or antiques um and you know something i do is i have students um because I, I teach, I have students Google photographs of random people who are not celebrities. And I tell them to choose um, a photograph of somebody who's not a celebrity and look at that person and imagine they're talking to you right now. And look at their expression, imagine what they're saying and just get the conversation going and then just have a conversation back and forth with that person. And you do that for a little while, you find that character's voice and, you know, and so exercises like that help but, um, I've also been blessed with, um, a group of friends who have a tremendous sense of humor and a lot of, um, their speech patterns and their sense of humor. I try to pay homage to with the characters in the scripts that I've been writing. Um, and, uh, so, um, and funny enough, they're not theater people, so I don't I do run the risk of them actually seeing the place. Uh, but but uh, well, that's been a huge help. But it's kind of you know either finding photographs and letting characters talk to me, or or kind of pickpocketing what what I've heard friends say, or just certain speech patterns, um, and uh, and just letting them talk um, and seeing where that where that takes us.
0: Does. For you, does it always start with uh, character? Does it start with plot?
1: And which to you is more important? I think that, uh, for me, content dictates form, but there should be form. And so I think that what it is that the characters need or want or what brings them here today should be the driving force but again there should be something driving the script um so i'm not i'm not sure if i'd say i'm a like a plot structure purist but i do at some point want to know why i'm taking the journey if i'm watching something um and i imagine the audience feels the same way that that plot structure is a lifeline for them um but i find that i really like scripts i've felt this elsewhere i think that we see characters trying to overcome some kind of obstacle using humor and magic so whatever that obstacle is that these characters are trying to overcome that becomes a plot what does a have to do to overcome this obstacle how do they have to convince b to either remove the obstacle or help them get the obstacle out of the way that sort of thing Uh, the short answer is, is probably character but that the plot does come from the character's wants or needs Um, and that can make a story very compelling oh yes totally so take us through your typical
0: writing process i mean how do you develop it from the beginning concept to the finished script with you you've talked about how you take your characters and form i mean i'm sure that's a huge part of it but where do you begin from step a to step z
1: It depends on the play. So I had one called Friendly's Fire, and it was done at the Barter Theater um, in Virginia back in 2017, and then in uh, downtown New York at the theater at the 14th Street Y, produced by the Rising Sun Performance Company in 2019. And that got its genesis because of some photographs um, that I found online when I was working with a small playwrights group, I put together here with a doctoral student, going back 13 years ago, and um, and so they're just wild images. There was like a like a kind of frontiersman looking character underwater. There was um, a gun with a bee, and there was um, a woman dancing with a skeleton. And I never made it into its, into the final play, but those images kind of stirred together, and. Um, and I found corollaries with um, people I knew. So eventually the play became about a veteran who returned from um, from the war. Uh, in this case, it was the Gulf War. And he's become isolated. And we see him in his isolation and the way that he's slowly driving himself crazy. And he has a friend who acts as a kind of... Um, a sancho panza to his di- don quixote now with that script i knew i needed help and so i did try to look at the hero's quest and the hero's journey to try to um make sure that i was following some kind of structure because it's very easy to, for me to just make that into a like a dream lands- landscape and um, so that's where it started was from photographs and as i was writing the characters and finding their dialogue just new weird elements were tied together and at some point i thought well what can i do to make this feel like it could take place on planet earth and how do i go between the real and the fantastic according to this one character's imagination um and uh and then that's where real life came in that's where i I generously borrowed from friends who had served in the military and um Uh, and also different childhood memories that I wove through. Um, But the starting point was photographs. It was something like, I have another play called Tracks, which was a semi-finalist for the O'Neill a few years ago. And that one came about because the Barter Theater, actually um, Nick Piper at the Barter Theater said, hey, have you ever thought about writing a play about the opioid epidemic? And I said, well, I don't really... I won't say that I don't write political theater, but I don't write like, perpo- like make that the foreground to my work. Um, so I wasn't sure if I'd be the right person to tackle that issue. And he said, no, I, I want you to write a brave play, but just have that be a part of it and see what you can come up with. And I thought, well, that I can do. And this one was a little different because I sat down and thought about some folks I knew in the Hudson Valley when I was a teenager and um folks that my wife knew when she was a teenager she grew up in the hudson valley as well and um created characters that were kind of surrogates for those people and imagine that imagine them by the um by the hudson river and this little piece of land um right by the water near some railroad tracks um it's a real place it's a place that we know well and how that location is constantly under threat from uh, Amtrak wanting to build a bullet line from, uh, Penn Station to Albany, but all that would have to be fenced off when they did that. And imagine this group of people about to lose their space while dealing with, um, opioids and, um, the, the pains of being, a um, an economically disadvantaged teenager of the 1990s, um, and as i was writing it there was a voice in my head that was saying please be normal please be normal please be normal but the hudson valley is the birthplace of euro-american myth that's i mean the the rip van winkle bridge is right there sleepy hollow is there it's all washington irving and at the time in the 1990s when this play was set um while the country was experiencing a sort of economic prosperity IBM actually went bankrupt in the Hudson Valley, and that was a source of our economy. And a number of factories were leaving due to different NAFTA plans, which certainly benefited some, but but it didn't benefit others. And um, so anyway, this idea was I had this waterway, and I had this kind of broken IBM computer monitor on the water, and I have these characters together, and I'm writing, and I'm thinking, be normal, be normal, be normal. And then suddenly the headless horseman crawled out of the Hudson River and put the IBM monitor on his shoulders as if it was his head. And because I have an allergy to the backspace key, I was like, well, if he's here now, what do I do with him? Um, And and thus the play was born. I just kept going back and forth again between the real and the fantastic. And I think more and more of the pieces I'm writing lately kind of oscillate between the real and the fantastic. So very different approaches, one from photographs and one saying, hey, can you write a play that does this? And me saying, well, let me see if I can take a stab at it.
0: Mm. let's change our thoughts to uh, the theater industry as a whole Um, what are your thoughts on the current state of the industry from the perspective of the playwright Uh, you know there are obviously subscriber issues with theaters and other kinds of things but what are your, from your perspective what are the biggest challenges that we face as playwrights
1: I think there are a bunch in terms of of um trying to find access to the major um league of residential theater spaces um i think that there are pipelines through those theaters that are well established and some of them have adjusted in recent years thankfully to allow for a plurality of voices um I do still think that there are questions about where the money's going. Um, I've been reading a lot about um, administrative um, administrators meaning well, but perhaps being a little short-sighted by pouring money into buildings and facilities and not so much um, gearing that towards having you know, full-time residential theater companies. I think the fact that there are so few now, barters one, I don't know of any of others, is a problem um you know i think that the residential the actual residential theater model where you have something that's full-time year-round serves the community have a resident playwright or two um, have special programming like the barter has in Abingdon. i'm just going to keep singing praises Mm -hmm. about the barter i'm not just doing that because it produced me i really think it's a good model i think that that model should be emulated um to make theater feel accessible to the community and to make it feel like the community's part of the conversation and that this is for them and with them. Um, But I'll also say that uh, while I recognize from the various things I've read, and I'm sure you've read it too, that some of the larger um, theaters are starting to crumble a bit, it hasn't affected me directly. Most of what I've done has been working with independent theaters, and um, whether it's in downtown New York or elsewhere. And they're always struggling. They're always at risk. Some independent theaters pop up they wrong run programming their best of their ability for a year, you know, being nomadic, finding space here, find space there and then say, Oh, the heck with it. And kind of, you know, give up and and the members will find something else to do. Um, but, uh, so I found myself connected to a lot of those kinds of organizations and I've also self-produced in festivals, um, which has been a riot. I love that. Um, I'm not sure how much more energy I have for that anymore, but I loved doing it when I did it. And um, it's a long way of saying that um, at some point, I recognized that maybe what I was doing was not necessarily something that would be embraced by the mainstream. And maybe I didn't have access to the pipelines for the mainstream. But what I did have was my own community of folks who um, loved creating together and so we just continued and to the best of my ability I wherever I go I try to find folks that want to create together want to play want to have some fun um, uh, I don't know what the answer is on the other side of this or the other side of what is clearly a crisis. Um, my hope is that we'll find more sponsors more donors that perhaps maybe one day the NEA will be, um, will be able to live up to its full potential. Um, but there's a lot of politics involved, as you know, and so I I, I get a little pessimistic about that. Um, but for a playwright starting out, if somebody today said, I wanna be a playwright and I'm gonna write plays, you know, I'd say, great, find some people, find a room, start a reading, find a space that you can get for cheap and produce your own play. Maybe not necessarily direct it, but just start there and see what that's like and maybe you can build yourselves a home where you are um and uh, and really have a good time and i think a lot of people are starting to do that um when i take a look around at some of the smaller theaters some of the independent theaters i think folks have caught on like okay well this is how we're going to do it um and uh they need grants too they need sponsors too don't get me wrong but those early days when it's just people experimenting in a room um I think that's what we need to encourage is just more and more of that in terms of playwriting and making a living oh man i wish i had an answer <laughs> you know it would be great you know tony kushner talked at the georgia theater conference um maybe seven years ago and he said that um up until angels in america and even including angels in america he never really made his bread and butter doing theater it was only after he sold a uh angels in america at hbo and started writing screenplays that he was able to truly support himself as a writer exclusively so sorry to bring bad news yeah and then there are other folks that i know who are fortunately just born with money and they can you know they can do it and it's okay if they write plays and it doesn't make a a, a killing for them because they're they're okay and and you know and good for them right then there's the rest of
0: us (laughs) then there's the rest of us it's reality um so here's an interesting pivot and i wanted to get your take on it um you were talking about getting creative people in a room uh now through zoom and through other ways and mechanisms we can make that room a whole lot bigger so what do you think the role of the playwright is in the evolving age of digital media and and the way we can use technology now
1: i've become a fan of zoom theater uh, or online theater um i think that in the early days of the pandemic that it was a challenge to create works where, you know, the actors weren't looking at their scripts or folks weren't looking around. That there wasn't as much a sense of blocking. But over the course of a couple of years, I feel that um, that approach to theater has come a long way, and um, and invites new opportunities to consider how a small screen can be a stage um to consider how to perform in it to perform with each other um across boundaries i know that different uh theater companies had zoom productions including actors from around the world contributing uh and short plays from around the world contributing and um and that just shows to me that playwrights are very adaptable um that we we can change pretty quickly um in very dire circumstances Um, and I saw some great, great zoom and, or online theater, um, during those couple of years. So I think there's a lot of, there are a number of possibilities for that. I do think it's both theater and also its own thing. Um, that I do think that, um, as an audience member, there's a different, um, there's different behaviors there's different uh set of criteria for watching something on your computer at home versus watching it in public um but i do think that there is a sort of democratizing um principle behind zoom theater provided that you have access to a computer i think it can be- reach a really large audience and keep art in our lives
0: when you looked out like maybe just into the future, Um, whether it's six months or six years from now, what are you most excited about uh, if we're talking about from the perspective of the playwright and then maybe theater in general, but uh, the state of theater. But if you're looking at from our standpoint, what are you most excited about?
1: I think we're at a moment where there's a potential to create like a new either little theater movement or a new independent theater movement i think we're at that moment i think there have been enough fringe festivals and other styles of festivals across the country that demonstrate how if you get a group of people together in one room um that they can create compelling stories and wonderful magical moments so my uh, the optimistic side of me is that this is a good moment to car- start considering well what could an independent theater movement look like um if you think about the little theater from 100 years ago what did that look like um so uh, i think that there are a lot of opportunities for creating new and exciting and not just experimental but also kind of you know more tried and true works as well um so i'm excited to see what that might look like um i have concerns about the larger theaters the the especially the Lort a theaters i i i really hope that something happens to, to bring them back up because i think that um independence and the kind of larger money-making theaters can thrive and exist side by side um but yeah, I'll keep it. I'll keep it optimistic. I think that there's the potential, because there's so many people now going for playwriting degrees and going for theater degrees, and um, and so I imagine that there'll be a lot of folks who say, "Dang it, I want to do this," and make it happen. That's my hope. That's why. That's why I foresee. That's my prophecy. In fact. <laughs>
0: well, speaking that's of cool. someone who just finished his MFA in playwriting and graduated. At- the age of 49 i can tell you i hope there is a future for us because i just spent the money
1: oh yeah the, and the money when i went to so i grew up um you know kind of working class my dad is was and still is a car salesman my mom worked in retail stores um and uh, until she got ill she's still with us that makes it sound like she's not with us but she hasn't been able to work and um and so I went through school through student loans. I went to a community college, then a four year school, then a three year school. And my parents um, to their credit said, you know, we want you to go to college. We're not going to tell you what to major in. Um, we can't pay for it, but you can live here. And Greg and I were like, great, we'll do that. And uh, so by hook or by crook, we made it happen. But at the end when I got hit with the price tag, oh, <laughs> that was a lot. Um, but uh, you, know, but regardless i I'm happy to say that everything's worked out um, but yeah, it's it but in terms of the the MFA, you know, I don't know if you want to put all that in, but in terms of the um MFA, I think the great thing about the MFA is that when you go for that degree, y- you're forced to write, you have no choice you have to write. there's a deadline, pages are due, uh, and you're working with people that speak a similar language um and so it's not about making the time to write it's like no no writing is a thing you have to do Uh, and that's why i love mfa programs Um, and i think beyond there are a lot of opportunities to network it's like what you're doing here with creating your podcast and being active on the playwrights connections on facebook and we just find each other and share opportunities and create opportunities for each other with each other um and I, and I think that's where the future of playwriting is, too, by the way. I think it's the sort of thing that you're doing where we're creating opportunities to talk to each other, to work with each other, um, and to play with each other down the line.
0: Oh, that's great. Um, just a couple more questions for you, and then you've been so generous with your time, I don't want to take up all of it. So what's your next big thing? What are you working on next?
1: Well, I have um, two full-length plays. The one I just mentioned, tracks. Um, I'm talking to a group here in Georgia about maybe producing it like a small art gallery and using those limitations of the gallery and seeing how we could still have a full production. Um, that's very much in its infancy. I am still sitting down in the world, but it's a piece where it's had a bunch of readings. It's been semi-finalists for a bunch of great things, but no one has yet said, okay, we're going to do this. And part of me thinks it's because it's a tragedy. And I mean, I, my wife told me that it was a downer. and as I was going through the process of like, oh no, this isn't a downer but but yeah, I think she's right. <laughs> and so gonna do it myself to probably just get it out of the way with. The other project that I'm working on is um, also full length, but this one' um, had a couple of readings. I actually had a really good zoom reading with um, uh, excuse me, with the uh, skeleton rep in New York City uh, called St John of Suburbia and that one's a bit more of like a romantic romantic comedy and there's a group uh, same group that did the reading of good night love and trail the kingdom theater company um they're going to produce the play in november um i think i'm allowed to officially say that they're producing the play in november for a weekend run um at a, at a space in um i think in harlem actually and uh so those are the two things i'm really looking forward to are, are those two productions um the other thing i'm working on is. Um, Well, i've got a few things but those are the two big like theater things um i'm also working on a monograph uh which is under peer review right now and i've got um i'm talking to my brother we've made a couple of movies together about making another short and then there are two other people i'm in conversation with about making a short movie with them so a little bit of a little bit of everything you know but the the conversations continue and the work continues and The path continues to be forged.
0: That's awesome. I have one more question, just one. And this isn't a downer question. It's just to let us all know that we're in this together. What is your favorite
1: rejection story? Oh, (laughs) well, I got one. This is quite some time ago. Um, my favorite, I'm going to say this is my least favorite. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be the opposite. My favorite is when folks say, hey, we just couldn't find space for this, but we love your work and let's continue the conversation because usually those emails are earnest. You know, the ones that are not a form letter, but the ones are like, listen, we really like this, but we can't fit the show. We can't, you know, this is not something we can accommodate, but let's keep the conversation going. Those are the best. But my favorite in terms of actually my the worst is there was this theater company I'm not going to name them That's a, uh, an equity contract company I think they're an SPT But they might be a Lord D And they um, They uh, have an open submission policy I think they're still going Like uh, once a year for about a month Like a lot of places do And I got in the habit of submitting to them During that time And the third year Again this is years ago So I didn't have as thick skin as I do now I sent them something and the artistic director wrote me back and said, I think I've heard your name before. And I said, Oh, that's great. And she said, Can you remind me where uh where you know, where I might have heard your name? And so I did the first thing of like, Well, I know these people and that people and those people, blah, blah, blah. I was like, But also this is the the third script I sent your way. So maybe you've you've read my previous plays, you know, such and such and such and such. And then they wrote back and said, After three plays, don't you think it's fair to say we're not a fit?
0: <laughs> oh no! Well, it wasn't a form letter.
1: It wasn't a form letter, but it was just so wild because I was having this conversation that I thought was really pleasant, and it, yeah. who, who so says I guess it will say it wasn't a form hand letter. insanity. Yeah. So oh, that one, crazy. that one kind of stuck with me. That was like 14 years ago already, but I still. I want to say that it doesn't bother me, me anymore, but I guess that would be a lie. It's an, It doesn't bother me in the sense that it keeps me up at night. But it's enough that if you ask, what's my favorite rejection story, it comes back to my mind in vivid detail. So that's it. Oh, there you <laughs> go.
0: All right. I just want to thank you, John, so much for joining us. Uh, this podcast, as always, as you will learn, is brought to you by Point park university's mfa program and writing for stage and screen it is a low residency program which basically means it's online except for a couple weeks every summer it is a great program i'm a graduate of it and i enjoyed my time immensely there the details of how to look it up will be in the podcast notes john thank you so much for your time and i will uh definitely see you on the playwright exchange i mean uh The playwright connection on facebook and if you are not a member of the playwright connection you really need to be on there people because it is a great resource uh and and what john was talking about uh creating connections it's a great way to do that so thank you john for everything
1: you've done well thank you thank you for having me all right thanks